Welcome to the Achievable Podcast, where we help you start your finance career by passing the FINRA SIE exam. All right. Hello, everyone. Uh, Kicking off another podcast here with Brandon Rith. If you want to say hello, Brandon. Hey, guys. Yeah, my name is Tyler York. I'm the founder of Achievable, and we work together on our FINRA SIE exam product. Uh, Brandon's expertise is put into our state-of-the-art learning app. Uh, that is the most effective way to, to learn the, uh, the FINRA SIE exam content uh, from your computer or phone. Uh, not more effective probably than hiring Brandon as a tutor, but <laughs> it's pretty good for uh, pretty good for your phone. And um, it is also free to try, and we encourage you to go to uh, achievable.me uh, and give it a try if you want to take a look at it, see how it works, and see if it's right for you. Um, but yeah, today for our podcast, um, and, and I'll let Brandon jump in with it, basic wisdom and what he's up to in a second in case you haven't heard it before. Um, we're going to take a deep dive into roles at the financial firms, uh, like not just buy side versus sell side, which is kind of like the high level, but also diving in, um, to four specific verticals within finance that are all pretty distinct and pretty important. Uh, And so those verticals are investment banking, private equity, hedge funds, and asset management, uh, with asset management probably being the one that uh, is the most common, right? Wealth management, maybe. Uh, But investment banking, obviously, private equity and hedge funds all get a ton of eyeballs and press and and things like that. So it should be a pretty good overview of, like, the main pillars uh, of sort of sales-side finance, right? And and sort of people-facing side of finance. And it should be interesting. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I think we'll have an opportunity today to talk a little bit more about those careers, maybe some ways in and what to expect if you do go down that path. Uh, By the way, my name is Brandon Rith and I run Basic Wisdom, which is a tutoring service. Uh, I help people from all walks of life pass FINRA and NASAA exams. And if you need any help with that, you can certainly reach out to me. But uh, of course, I've partnered with Tyler and Achievable to help bring uh, this SIE product that we have available to the market. Yeah. No, um, yeah, Brandon, Brandon's even selling himself short. He's a world-class FINRA tutor uh, and can help with uh, the FINRA SAE as well as a bunch of other serious exams. Uh, his website is basicwisdom.net. Let's really uh, – I really just want to dive into your knowledge here, Brandon, um, of the industry, right? And I think that the high level where people usually delineate sort of between – um, the two sides, so to speak, of finance is the buy side and the sell side. So first, it'd be great for you to, at a very high level, say, like, what is the buy side? What is the sell side? Uh, and then sort of dive into um, each of them for a few minutes and maybe call out a few firms that you feel like represent them pretty well. And then from that, we can kind of start to talk about those four major pillar categories that we had brought up. Where did they fall on buy side, sell side, and then start to dive into those individually? Sure. So finance is a tough industry to, to kind of get used to at first. And, I, and a lot of it's dressed up in language, uh, lingo that, the, that we use in the industry. 
if you understand what a vocabulary word means or what a term means, I think it becomes a lot easier. So I guess the first recommendation I would give anyone is just if, if you have any questions over, you know, what a certain term means, or if something seems complicated just because the term seems complicated, just look it up and, and try to figure out where you go from there. But, you know, terms like buy side and sell side, you might, you might be thinking, man, what the heck are we talking about there? Um, Buy side first. This this is definitely oversimplifying it, but the buy side is exactly what it sounds like. A company that's in the business of connecting their clients or themselves with the investments that they're looking for is the buy side. Now, if we're talking about an organization that does this for their clients, this could be something like, oh, I I am the broker for a teacher's union in Alabama. I help them buy and sell securities to make sure that the teachers, when they retire, have some kind of income that they can receive in retirement. It could be that. It could be you are an employee for Vanguard and you buy and sell securities specifically for Vanguard uh, mutual funds. That could be an example of it. And there are a lot of different examples of organizations that buy investments specifically for their clients. And that could be anything from a mutual fund to a hedge fund to an asset management type of a fund. Um, You know, a a lot of times when we talk about companies in particular, we'll hear about the Black Rocks, the Fidelities, the Vanguards, Charles Schwab, Bridgewater. To me, those are all some pretty well-known companies that that focus primarily on buy side, even though they might have parts of their operation that deal with the sell side. Uh, I also said that the buy side also includes buying for themselves, meaning if we have an organization and they are out there looking for securities specifically for their own investment purpose, like I'm Goldman Sachs and I'm going out there to buy you know, thousands of shares of Tesla because we think Tesla is a good investment opportunity for us, not for our clients. That would be an example of what we call proprietary trading. Prop trading, as some people refer to it, uh, is a big part of the market. And I think that's a, that's one thing that a lot of people don't even realize. Uh, a company like Goldman Sachs, one of their biggest forms of revenue is making money on the investments that they make for themselves, not for their clients, but for themselves with their own money. Uh, but at the end of the day, both are examples of buy side. We have an organization of some form, typically a corporation, that is working to connect its clients or potentially itself with the investments it's seeking. Now, that's the buy side. The sell side is the other part of the transaction that actually gets the trade or the uh, transaction done. So as an example, if I'm working for a teacher's union and I'm looking to buy a bunch of stock for the teacher's union, I'm on the buy side, I am going to connect myself with an organization on the sell side to gather those investments for the teacher's union. Um, If you were looking for a real basic way of looking at it, the sell side is in the business of creating, promoting, selling, and just generally getting the investments that that the buy side is looking for. That's what the sell side essentially does. Uh, and there are a lot of different parts to the sell side. Um, you know, a lot of times people will, will chop up the sell side into either the primary market or the secondary market, the primary market being the initial public offering market where something is being sold for the very first time. So as an example, if I'm Morgan Stanley working directly with Tesla, Tesla wants to sell some stock to the public. They hire Morgan Stanley to help them sell that stock to the public. 
Morgan Stanley guides them through the process of, of essentially getting their stock ready to be sold, registering it with the SEC, so forth. Uh, and then Morgan Stanley, when, when the time is right, will market those securities and sell those securities being Tesla stock to the public on behalf of Tesla. Tesla is, an, is a company that's in the business of energy and you know nice cars that, that don't make any noise going down the road. When it comes to finance, they need to hire a company like Morgan Stanley to help them sell their investments to the public. So that's the primary market side. And then we also have the, the secondary market side where we have an investment that's been out there in the market for some time. It's already been sold. So as an example, like let's just think about a, some old company, maybe like Coca-Cola. Uh, I might be a market maker in the market. And my job is to make sure that if people want to buy or sell uh, Coca-Cola stock, then I'm out there willing to trade with them. Um, I It's almost like I, as a market maker, hold a huge inventory of Coca-Cola stock. And if you want to come buy it, I've got it. You can come get it from me. I can sell it to you if you want me to. Um, and like, like I said, there are many different forms of businesses on the sell side. A lot of times we'll hear terms like investment banks or underwriters, which we will talk a little bit more about in, uh, in a little bit. Uh, there are also commercial banks, broker dealers. Uh, I already mentioned market makers. A lot of different roles and responsibilities in this world. And you can get lost in talking about all the different jobs and careers that you can chase down. But in case you were wondering, most of the companies that you'll hear about on the sell side will be companies like UBS or uh, JP Morgan, Morgan Stanley, Citigroup. Uh, I'm leaving out a bunch there, but I think you get the idea. If you're a business um, and you're focusing on getting your clients the securities they're seeking out, and you're specifically focusing on selling them those securities, but not not acquiring them, that is more the sell side of finance. Maybe it's just worth like before we go into like what job corresponds with buy side or sell side, uh, to just mention kind of maybe just like if you're just looking at this from like I'm a new person looking at finance, right? Like I'm a college student that's trying to understand where I want to go. Buy side or sell side seems to be a pretty big fork in your decision as far as where you take your career. And so it'd be interesting if you have any thoughts on essentially like what who excels where or maybe what the work looks like on each side at, a, again, a very high level. Because we'll go into that more also with the specific uh, verticals. Yeah, it's. I think it's important for us to go through those specifics because I'll, I'll talk very generally here. Keyword generally, um, the sell side from my experience is for the more analytical type of person. So if you pull up Microsoft Excel and look at that as more of a hobby than a job, then this might be the right path for you. Um, I find that the sell side is more analytically, analytically driven, more, more math-based. Uh, and I'll give you an example of why. Um, I have a colleague that works uh, as a trader of uh, bonds. He works specifically for a market maker. And, um, and his job is to basically fill trades that customers request as quickly and as efficiently and as cheaply as he possibly can. So as an example, let's say that he gets a, an order from a large institution to buy $1 million of bonds. It is his job to get those million dollars of bonds for that customer as cheaply, as quickly, and efficiently as possible. 
Um, a lot of times in the sell side, your reputation is based not necessarily on your relationship with your clients. I mean, you, you might have a schmoozy type of relationship with your clients, but ultimately the bottom line is, is the money. Uh, if you build a career based upon getting trades done quickly for customers and at the best possible price, business will come back to you. So a lot of times you're given a request to get something done and you have to be very quick. Um, a lot of times uh, you are judged on how efficient, how quick your order can get through and, and comparatively, you know, what you, were you trading the security or the investment at versus what was the rest of the market trading it at? A lot of numbers that, that kind of float around there. That's a generalization for the sell side. On the buy side, I find that there's a little bit more focused on the relationship that you keep with your clients in terms of keeping them happy, making sure they understand what's happening in their accounts, make sure they understand what's happening in the markets, et cetera. And of course, there are some analytics. There are always going to be analytics in finance where you're going to be looking at numbers and have to understand what those numbers are telling you. Um, and you, with the buy side, you will possibly be, need to make recommendations to customers based upon what they already have and what their goals are in their accounts. Uh, but ultimately, I find a lot of the times on the, on the buy side, you're focused ultimately on that relationship that you have with the, with the client. Um, at the end of the day, I, I don't think you're going to go wrong with either side if you're trying to get into finance, meaning that you're not going to be stuck on the buy side if you start on the buy side or vice versa. Uh, a lot of times I find there's there's a significant amount of switching between the two industries. And I kind of think of it like, you know, if you think about what our politicians do, like if I serve as a senator for 16 years, a lot of times these ex-politicians will go work for lobbyists on the other side, uh, kind of on the other side of politics. And it's because they understand the inner workings of our political system and they help lobbyists get done whatever they're trying to get done or whatever they're trying to lobby. So I, I kind of think of it that way with buy side versus sell side. I don't think you're stuck on one side when you start on one side, but ultimately uh, you can uh, find a career on either side and can be successful on either side, dependent on what your skill set is. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Well, I think that that is going to probably give people a good overview. Um, and now I think we can just like maybe at a high level uh, go through our verticals that we have lined up here. Um, and then we can dive into the first one. Um, but yeah, the verticals that we had in mind, guys, uh, our listeners, guys and girls, um, were investment banking, private equity, hedge funds, and asset management. Um, and so I think you wanted to start with investment banking, you mentioned. And so I think let's just jump right into that. Yeah, let's do it. Um, investment banking, for lack of a better way of saying it, is a company that helps another organization sell an investment to the public to raise money. Okay, that doesn't sound too complicated, right? Um, let's go through an example. Uh, recently, earlier this year in 2019, uh, Uber went through its first initial public offering. Uh, Uber wanted to sell a bunch of stock to the public so they could raise money to grow their business. Now, Uber is in the business of getting people from point A to point B, right? We call that ride sharing. That's their business. That's what they know well. They are not a finance company uh, and don't specialize in selling stock to the public or dealing with the SEC or dealing with all the rules and regulations in the market, et cetera. So a company like Uber, when they want to sell an investment to the public to raise money, 
they hire an underwriter, which is sometimes referred to as an investment banker. Uh, In Uber's example, Morgan Stanley was one of the main underwriters that they hired. Uh, They hired Morgan Stanley, and Morgan Stanley's job was to guide them through what we call the new issue or the IPO, initial public offering, process. Uh, Again, uh, in order to sell something to the public, there are a lot of rules and regulations you have to worry about. Uh, If you haven't been this far in your SIE materials or just don't know the background, here's your 20-second just quick lesson on this. Uh, If you are a, let's say, a corporation that is not exempt from rules and regulations in the market, you have to go through a process of registering your investment with the SEC prior to selling it. And essentially what you're doing is you're disclosing a bunch of information on who you are as a company and all the backgrounds, all the financials, who's the CEO, who are the officers and directors, what is the company's goal when it comes to raising this money and using that money. Uh, It is the corporation's job to disclose all that to the SEC and then put it into a nice tidy package that we call prospectus for their investors. And there's a lot that goes into that process. It's very time intensive. It's very money intensive. And companies like Uber that are not in the business of finance need to hire underwriters to guide them through that process and ultimately be the marketer of those investments. Uh, If you were to ask an investment bank what their most important job was, their, their most important job is to raise money for their clients. So when Uber hires Morgan Stanley, Uber expects Morgan Stanley to be able to sell as much Uber stock as they possibly can and to raise enough money for Uber to be able to grow its business and grow its operations. Uh, Of course, the sale of Uber stock will benefit both companies where Uber will receive a bunch of money from that offering. You know, that, that is their stock they're selling. But inevitably, Morgan Stanley has to have some kind of incentive to do it. So they get paid very well. Usually, uh, usually these underwriters and investment banks are making the tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions of dollars on these bigger initial public offerings that they're helping other companies out with. So if you were to work for an investment bank, you would be part of that process in some form or fashion. Mm-hmm. And it's investment banking is often considered... Um, sort of, at least for like college graduates, it's where a lot of Ivy League people go. Yes. Um. I, yeah. I don't know. I'd like. I want to say like prestigious or cream of the crop, but I think it has to do with your opinion, I guess, of like what's interesting. But I, I, it definitely investment banking has a reputation, right? Mm-hmm. Like of the you know Wharton MBA kids, it's NYU Stern people, etc. Yep. Um, and, and so what is it about investment banking either that generates the kind of demand from the highest quality students per se, or is it like, or what is it that sort of like connects those two worlds? Yeah, good question. Um, you know, just to be blunt, I think one of the main driving factors there is that there's a lot of money in that world um, and there's only a limited amount of jobs in that world. So if you're thinking from the employer standpoint, who are you more apt to hire? You know, someone who, who's graduated with a, with a 4.0 from, from Princeton School of Business uh, or someone like from my school, Florida State. By the way, no offense, my Florida State uh, alumni. But, um, you know, well, look I, at I, you, right? right? I mean, it, it really doesn't matter in the long term. And I think everyone knows that. But it is, you know, people still have to use colleges as a yardstick. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I guess to 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 
not go back on that point a little bit, but to me, there's two ways to get into the business of investment banking. One, you can have an impressive college background. Uh, and I, and also, I, I think that another big reason why a lot of Ivy League schools end up filtering a lot of their students into these careers is because they have legitimate good programs that teach a lot about real world and go in depth in terms of what happens within these within these sectors. Uh, you know, I'll be honest, I, I didn't really know much about finance, even after getting a finance degree through through uh, F- Florida State. And, uh, you know, that's no knock on their program. It's just I, I just don't think it was as detailed or as oriented enough on investment banking. So uh, a lot of these bigger Ivy League schools just have more resources and have more and they have more, I guess, you know, access to, to these worlds to, to give their students a better idea of, of what they need to be prepared for going into these types of careers. Well, and you actually you use the magic word, uh, which is access. And I mm-hmm. think that what does that really mean to me? I think it's connections. I think it's having like an established relationship with a lot of these firms, the school, uh, not the student directly. Um, but I think that that kind of access also matters a lot, right? Yes. In fact, that was what I was just about to go to, which was, uh, I think there's two ways to get into this world, which is number one, have an impressive college background, Ivy League school. Great. That'll open some doors. Absolutely. Secondly, networking. And sometimes I would even say networking might even get you get you further um, unless you have a 4.0 from an Ivy League school. That's That's a little bit different. But networking, networking, networking. If you've ever heard the phrase, it's not what you know, it's who you know. That's that. There's no more. There's no place where that's truer than finance. Uh, a lot of times, if you know the right person, or if you network enough and meet the right people, you can get your foot in the door. At the very least, into an entry level position. Maybe the the tough part would be getting one of these people who are w- within the industry already to vouch for you. And you might have to do something more than just invite in some kind of analyst to a lunch or go out to a couple of networking events. Uh, you, you would probably need to prove to them in some form or fashion that you know what you're doing and that, and that you're a hard worker. But ultimately, networking will, should get your foot in the door uh, in terms of at least getting an interview and and getting getting the people within the firm to at least consider hiring you. The biggest thing with investment banking also is just like the more that you can start to peel the layers away, the more that you can start to understand the process that people go through. Uh, it seems to have, and I don't know if other verticals are similar in this way, but certainly investment banking seems to have like a lot of its own rituals a lot of its own sort of processes and and quirks that are unique to investment banking and being hired in investment banking. Um, and one of the best websites for that, uh, which, you know, full disclosure, they are a marketing partner of ours, so we market on their website, uh, but it's Wall Street Oasis, which has just a bevy of resources as well as a very active forum with 30,000 posts or something like that. Uh, about investment banking, how to nail the interviews, how to do 
the uh, resume correctly, um, just a ton of stuff, right? And these things also exist for the other verticals as well. But I think in investment banking, whether it's the money or the prestige that kind of gets associated with it, or just the difficulty, uh, it seems to get a lot of support from websites like Wall Street Oasis. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, and I, in fact, I was actually looking through it earlier today, and, and there was a good post on on uh, someone was asking how to get into investment banking uh, with a 3.0 from a non-Ivy League school, or at least I think they had something below a 3.0. And there were a couple people there that while they said, hey, a below 3.0 from a non-Ivy League school is not going to... You know, it's not going to wow anyone, but at the same time, every single response said network, 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 meet, try to do whatever you can to meet someone within the company, take them out to lunch, you know, pick the brain a little bit. And, uh, if you can prove to someone within the company that again, if you're a hard worker and that you can learn quickly, uh, that's usually a good way to get your foot in the door. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, uh, I also think that, um, you know, networking is one of the things that as a college student is sometimes more mo- most nebulous. So maybe we even have a whole uh, separate podcast on how to network. Oh, for sure. We, we should. Absolutely. Um, <clears throat> well, cool. I, yeah, I'd love, I'd love to. Um, oh, yeah. Sorry. You, you can finish your thought on that. No, uh, I was just going to ask you if you wanted to jump into the different jobs within investment banking. Yes. Yeah, that's perfect. I guess to go from here, uh, we can talk about a few jobs within investment banking. And because we're a entry level or, or just a lower level in terms of the types of jobs that you would get with the licenses that we teach, I'm not going to talk about, say, like your CFO position or your, even your CEOs or your officer director type positions. We're going to focus on what you could reasonably attain within, say, the first uh, let's say the first three to five years uh, of you graduating from college. Uh, so some jobs within investment banking, the lowest level job, believe it or not, is, is what they would refer to as an analyst. And this is the, this is one of the few jobs in investment banking that you could get hired right out of an undergrad, just with a finance degree or something similar. Uh, especially if you have a good background with, or a good, uh, record when it came to your, your, uh, your degree, this is one that you can get hired right out of school. Um, and the, the analyst job, without going into too many details, comes with two requirements. Uh, just like it says in the title, you're analyzing different types of investments. Um, and when I say analyzing investments, l- let's say that some company wants to hire your investment banking company to help them sell stock to the public. There's going to be a lot of analysis that goes into that. Like, you know, how should we sell this? What type of person should we market this to? Um, you know, what should be the price of this investment? Things like that. Uh, so a lot of analyzing investments and then also making presentations on, on your analysis to certain people within the firm, usually people that are higher up to, than you, and just presenting the information that you found. Uh, this is a very database job where you're taking a bunch of information and then trying to make a presentation out of it. Um, a level above that, and this is the only other job I'm going to mention within investment banking, is the is the associate, which is one level above an analyst. Uh, an associate is someone that does a lot of analytical 
a lot of the analytical part of the job is still exists. So there's still a lot of data analysis. There's a lot of presentations you might give, but these associates typically oversee the analysts and have some kind of supervisory role when it comes to them. And that might be more guidance based than, than say, you know, hire and fire the type of the, the, the analysts. Uh, but their job is essentially to oversee and manage analyst work and sometimes add their input whenever an analyst might might get in, uh, might run into a dead end or something like that. Now, to be an, an associate, you typically need to have an MBA uh, of some form or a higher level degree um, from there. Uh, you could also potentially have heard of uh, colleagues of mine obtaining a CFA. Have you ever heard of a CFA, which is a completely separate designation? Uh, but that's that one's going to take some time and some educational efforts, even beyond just the normal licensing that you would need to to even do the job. Right. Yeah. The CFA is basically all the FINRA exams on steroids. Uh, it's a lot more work. Yes. Three year process typically at the very well. If you're if you're speeding through it, you could get done with it in two and a half years. But most people take three to four years at a minimum to make it through. Uh, it covers a ton of information. You basically, at the end of it, you become the type of person that can look at a complicated financial statement, uh, utilize a spreadsheet, and tell someone whether or not this is a good investment. I think that's, you know, for the most part, if we're not diving too deep into it, I think that's that's investment banking uh, from a 10,000-foot view. Great. Yeah, I think this is a good opportunity um, to move on to private equity, so the second one you wanted to cover today. Let's do it. So private equity sounds complicated or sophisticated on the surface, and it is, uh, but private equity, to make it as simple as possible, is a organization that connects investors with investments that are not publicly available. Uh, a little bit earlier, I talked about how Uber went through its initial public offering with Morgan Stanley, you know, hired Morgan Stanley, went through a long registration process with the SEC, and that was all uh, in order for them to raise money by selling their stock to the general public. And anyone, anyone could buy that stock. Um, before Uber went public, Uber did a lot of what we call private placements, where they were selling shares of their company to a private audience of people. And the reason why companies do that is because they're able to avoid a lot of the rules and regulations that you have to face when you go public or when you sell your investment publicly. Uh, so one of the rules that comes with a, what we call private placement, again, selling a investment to a small group of people, is that the rules and regulations won't apply as long as the majority of your investors in that situation are what we call accredited investors. And without going into the details, basically, the wealthier you are, the more likely it is that you're considered accredited. So if you uh, meet that definition of a wealthier slash accredited investor, then you're likely eligible for these types of investments that are just not available to the general public. Uh, a lot of people got access to Uber stock before Uber even went public. Uh, and if you did, you were probably getting access to that through what we call a PE or a private equity firm. So your, your jobs that you will find within, within a PE firm in general, and again, we're talking about your jobs that you can probably attain uh, relatively uh, short after college, 
business development is a job that you could find there. Uh, and a business development type of a job would be researching potential investments, yeah, meaning that if you're looking for, you're out there looking for the types of companies that a PE firm would be potentially investing in. You might even start conversations with the company itself, meaning you might start conversations with the CEO or with some upper management just say, Hey, you know, we're interested in your company. Are you looking for any kind of infusion of capital, which is finance speak of, Hey, do you want any cash from us for in return for an investment in your company? Uh, and, and also there, there might be some financially financial modeling, which just a, another way of just saying that uh, you're trying to seek the, the potential profitability of this investment. Uh, and you're, you're basically the front line for the company. You're, you're almost the filter for the people that will eventually decide if this is a good investment for the private equity firm. So yeah, out there searching, looking for a lot of opportunities, seeking those opportunities out. Now, once you find an opportunity that you feel is somewhat decent or at least, at least worth it to pursue or look into a little bit more, you'll usually hand over a bunch of financial statements that you obtained from the company to an investment analyst. And that investment analyst is then going to look at the numbers and is going to try to back up what you think. If you think an in a, in a investment in this specific company is a good idea, the investment analyst job within the private equity firm is going to back that up by looking at data and basically analyzing it and making sure that the numbers make sense. Um, I, I would think of your investment analyst as kind of like uh, if you've ever watched Shark Tank and, and and seen them kind of crunch the numbers and think you know hey you, you your company you're you're saying your company is worth a million dollars but you have you know half a million dollars in debt that's the type of stuff that your investment analyst is generally speaking going to look at so those are your two kind of you know I'm seeking out investments for the private equity firm and trying to see if they're a good opportunity for the the firm itself. Um, those are your two jobs that are kind of within that bucket. But there are also some customer-facing jobs within the firm. Uh, you can strictly be a salesperson where you're trying to obtain business for the private equity firm, meaning you're trying to bring in cash so they can then take that cash and invest it into these opportunities. You could also be an investor relations type of a, in a, in a, in a investor relations type of a job, which would usually be talking to your current customers, making sure they're satisfied with what's going on. They might call you up with some questions about what shows up on their statement or the types of investments that, that the private equity firm is seeking out. And, and that's your job is to essentially keep them happy. So in general, those are four categories within a private equity firm that, that you could attain. Of course, there's other jobs within the company that, that are out there. But in, in general, those are your lower level, uh, let's say entry level-ish type of jobs. Cool. Great. Thank you, Brandon. Yeah. And, and I think that covers PE pretty well. I think... Um... And now we can probably move on to hedge funds. Uh, we've got two more left for the viewers here, listeners. We've got hedge funds and asset management remaining. Uh, and so we're thinking, you know, kind of five, ten minutes for each. Cool. So hedge fund is probably something that some, if not most, of our of our listeners have heard about, uh, even if you don't know what it is. You know, the word hedge in finance is is a word that usually relates to protection. There's the phrase hedge your bets. Now, the problem is if you're thinking about hedge funds being safe or protecting you, that's not what they do. Hedge funds started out as funds where people were putting their money into them and they were getting a, a, a manager of their money that would then take their money, put in the market into fairly safe investments, but they evolved over time and they're no longer that way anymore. When people think about hedge funds today, 
you want to think about a hedge fund as a high risk, high reward type of a place where you can put your money. Well, and it's it's they're generally um, they're working with a ton of money, right? Like yes. that's one. The other the reason they lever their incredibly large sums of money to do things that like a normal investor couldn't do. Yes, they do. Um, and they do a lot of, uh, you may hear the term exotic with hedge funds. They do a lot of exotic investing, investing, which is fancy finance speak for, they do things that, that you don't really hear or see about. Um, so you might see a hedge fund, say, buying or investing into things that you would never think are an investment. The bottom line with a hedge fund is that this is a place that typically very wealthy people put their money into. The role of the hedge fund is to make the fastest and the quickest return for their investors. A lot of times, uh, they're not really focused on the long-term gain, even though hedge funds are trying to make money year after year after year. They're mostly interested in getting short-term gains for their investors. This is again a high risk, high reward type of a type of a fund where there's a there's a lot of interesting things that they invest in. Whether it's going short securities that they think are going to drop in value, uh, for instance, if you've ever heard of Bill Ackman, he was uh, pretty famous for his one billion dollar short on Herbalife. He thought Herbalife was a uh, was a Ponzi scheme, and whether you think it's a Ponzi scheme or not, he took out, <laughs> out a one billion dollar uh, short position on Herbalife and actually ended up biting them pretty hard. They survived his. His uh, his onslaught of of shorting the company, which just means he's betting against the company and betting that they're going to fail. Um, so that's what hedge funds do. They take they take wealth the money from wealthy investors and then try to make them the quickest and the fastest money possible. Now, in in terms of your jobs within hedge funds, uh, there's a couple different jobs that I, I think that people could relatively attain at, at a at an entry level position and get in there fairly within reason uh, in terms of the, their graduation from college. You can get an, an analyst type of a role. Um, an analyst, just like it sounds like, and just like we've been talking about, analysts are out there seeking potential investment opportunities for the hedge fund, trying to find the the right things that will, they think will make them the most money the fastest. Um, also, kind of along the maybe the analytical side uh, or the more number-crunching side is that you could be a trader within a hedge fund. Meaning that you're once the decision has been made to make an investment, the traders within the hedge fund go out there and try to make that purchase or try to make that investment the fastest and the quickest and the most efficient way that they could possibly do it. But in addition to just the analytical side, there's also investor relation roles within hedge funds, which could include sales and fundraising, basically going out there and trying to find millionaires and billionaires and institutions that give you money to then take their money and invest that money. Or it could be just keeping your investors happy. Being on the other side of the phone when when one of your investors that has a big position or a big investment in your hedge fund and, and making sure that they understand what's going on if they have questions. So those are some some jobs within hedge funds that you can attain. And and I haven't mentioned this; it just has been on my mind for a few of the paths that we've gone through in terms of careers. You know, one way that you can get your foot in the door if you don't have a lot of experience or maybe you don't have a stellar background in terms of your education uh, is there are a lot of internships within these companies. Uh, you might not be paid for your efforts. Um, and yeah, there's probably going to be some competition for an internship for the more well-known companies, but um, that's a way that you can get in there, show that you're willing to work hard, showing that you're willing to, to learn quickly. Um, and a lot of those internship jobs, if you prove yourself, will end up in a, in a, in, into a potential full-time position with the company. Exactly. Yeah. And I think that, um, hedge funds are, an interesting bit because you mentioned also like the Herbalife guy 
Um, hedge fund owners have this penchant for using the press, particularly sort of the the like salacious finance portion of the finance press, uh, to try and influence things on the sort of their own behalf, right? Like this guy took out a big short against Herbalife and then he immediately started bashing Herbalife um, as an example of that, right? And it's interesting, is, is that illegal? Like you certainly don't see Goldman Sachs or Fidelity doing that, right? So is that illegal for other groups and it's legal for hedge funds or is it more just like a like a sort of an honor or... Yeah, that's a great question. That's a great question. One one of the things you learn about when you start studying the material that that's that we put out there is that market manipulation is a big no no. Uh, you don't you shouldn't be doing anything that would be potentially artificially moving the price upward and downward. What I'll say is that there's no favorable rules for certain types of companies. Uh, the SEC and the regulators out there don't really have much of a preference over, hey, you know, we're going to allow a hedge fund to do this, but we're not going to allow a, you know, say an investment banking company to do this. Um, but I will say this: hedge funds come with a lot of a, a, a lack of regulation. Let's say that. Um, one of the ways that hedge funds get around being regulated, say like a mutual fund is, is by limiting their investment to only very wealthy investors. So as an example, most hedge funds will not even pick up the phone unless you have a million dollars to invest with them. Some of them have $10 yeah, million. million is actually kind of low, right? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, it, it is. I was going to say most of them have a 10 million minimum, 20 million minimum, 50. I've even heard of 50 million minimums. Um, you know, if you don't, uh, if some of the smaller hedge funds, they'll pick up the phone if you have a million to invest. But this goes back to the rule or uh, if you ever read about Regulation D, and that is in the Achievable material, Regulation D is a, is a rule that allows certain types of investments to be sold without much oversight or much supervision from regulators like the SEC, but only if they're sold to small groups of millionaires, billionaires, and institutions. In, in terms of manipulating the market or saying things or just being salacious with your interviews in the media, hedge fund managers straddle a lot of gray area. The SEC is very much a, uh, a an institution that that is always trying to catch up with the industry, meaning that all of their rules and regulations are they're not really forward thinking. Um, it's ma- it's mainly because they don't have a ton of resources or a ton of money to think forward and just finance changes every day. Finance evolves and gets more and more complicated every single day. A lot of the rules and a lot of, a lot of the rules are written kind of in a past tense and covering things in terms of how they used to be. And you'll find very quickly, if you research a lot about things that happen in finance, um, is that finance professionals bend, they, they bend the rules until they break. Um, so I guess it's why there's so many rules, right? I think this is, you know, it's like a decent thing to mention. Um, when you're doing all the FINRA SIE studying and just other FINRA studying in general, you might ask yourself like, what's the point of all this stuff, right? Um, cause there's a lot of what seemed to be almost like no, kind of like obvious, like no duh kind of rules, right? Um, things like, you know, you can't accept super large gifts from people, et cetera. Um, and so it's, it's because, uh, just because of the fact that money is involved in everything that you do, um, you really got to have really tight rules around how it all is supposed to work. 
or people will break them and make money for themselves and their clients doing so. And, you know, sort of how the 2008 financial crisis came about and a bunch of other things. Yeah. The reason why the rules exist is because someone messed up in the past, simply stated, right? right? Uh, so, and there's a lot of, there's a lot of history there in finance. So the regulators are paying attention to what hedge fund managers are saying, but at the same time, unless they have a real case against them, unless they blatantly break a rule, what you'll find is a lot of times these hedge fund managers, I mean, we're talking about hedge fund managers that make hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars, sometimes even on a yearly basis. You better believe that they're going to have access to the best attorneys and the best legal resources possible. So the SEC is a lot of times is going to kind of shy away from going after these 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 fund managers, even if they say silly things. They shouldn't be saying unless they have a solid case and they they, they can prove that they broke they absolutely broke a rule. Great. Well, um, I think that's a really good overview of hedge funds, and I think now let's move on to asset management, and which is our final topic for the day. And sort of Great. the final vertical that we're going to cover. Great. Uh, asset management is a fairly general uh, term. Uh, if you just think about the two terms together there, uh, an asset is you know anything you could put your money into that could make you a return. And then management is just managing managing people's money, essentially. If you were to look up the definition of an asset management firm, it's it sounds something like the you know, we have a firm that invests their, their customers' money into various different things uh, based upon stated objectives. It's going to sound somewhat similar to your hedge fund, but I'd say the big difference between a hedge fund and an asset management fund is that an asset management fund is more long-term focused, and also it's it's more focused on their individual clients' um, wants, needs, and objectives. With less than $20 million as well. I think yeah, that's another big exactly. difference. Yeah, this is where the small, a lot of small fish go, but also, you know, a lot of a, a lot of the bigger investors can also put their money in asset management firms. Um, but basically, these are companies that take take a fee for taking your money and investing it in different places, and ultimately give you diversification, liquidity, which is a way of saying that you can get your money out of these things pretty quickly. Um, and professional management services uh, that that maybe you as an investor couldn't do on your own. As an example, um, I mean, we mentioned some of the asset management firms. I mean, the firm that I came from, Fidelity Investments, is considered an asset management firm where you can take your money to them, can work with an advisor there, and they will talk to you about what your background is, what your financial status is, what your goals, what your objectives are, and then help you construct a portfolio and put your money into the right things that will suit those goals and objectives that you have. I would assume that most the people obtaining your SIE in the Series 7 are probably going to go into asset management. Um, out of all the four that we've talked about today, this is probably the most general and the one where there's a lot of lot more opportunities for, say, your everyday entry-level type of a person. There are some jobs. Uh, well, I'll go through, generally speaking, four different types of jobs within asset management that people usually attain. Uh First, sales. Sales would include going through what I what I just talked about there, talking to a client, understanding what their objectives are, understanding what their situation is, and then making recommendations to them based upon the products that your firm offers. Um, and that might even include constructing an entire portfolio for them and making sure that their money is invested in a way that they can reach their goals. And by the way, if you're getting into sales, that's the type of job that requires your Series 63, uh, Series 65, Series 66. Um, so there's, there's multiple licenses that come into play there. Especially given the fact that with these asset management firms, you're more so acting and working with the general public 
versus like a hedge fund, you might be able to avoid some some of those licenses just because you're dealing with more affluent, higher income and wealthier investors. Generally speaking, the, the more sophisticated the type of investor you deal with, the less licensing, the less regulation that there is. There's a couple other jobs in, uh, within asset management, which uh, a re- you could be a research analyst within an asset management uh, field. And just like we've talked about before, just pretty similar to the other, to the other functions we've discussed. Uh, you take in data on investments, uh, you research, find the data out there on these investments you might be putting your customers money into and try to figure out, hey, is this a, is this a good choice or what are the merits to this investment? You could also be a trader. Uh, that was actually my first job at Fidelity. Was to, I was on their trading desk. I was trained to take phone calls uh, from customers and a customer would call up with a request of, hey, I want to buy shares in this or I want to invest in this bond or buy this mutual fund. And my job would be to make sure that I get them into that investment uh, in the fastest and the most efficient way with the least amount of fees. You know, you could be a trader and a lot of times that job comes with uh, the requirement to get the SIE and the Series 7. Cool. Yeah, and I think um, it it's also maybe worth just mentioning um, sort of – I think the asset management is often and, – and correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it's really kind of like the broadest and most common path into getting into finance sales. Absolutely. Okay. Yes. Yeah, I mean there are – I mean if you've – all the big companies you probably think about when you think finance, like the Schwabs, the Vanguards, the TD Ameritrades, those are all considered asset management. Um, and and like I was saying before, it's it's probably the most. I mean, there's so many different opportunities and 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 paths so you can go down within this. And yeah, it's it's very general. We, we, asset management is not really saying much. It's not really saying anything specific, other than you're taking clients' money and you're investing it on their behalf. Um, now, a client could be a retail client. It could be an institutional client. It could also be your client could be a, a, um, a fund. It could be a lot of different things. But ultimately, you're working with a client of some form and then getting their money into the best possible investments based upon their situation. Um, and, and then the last one, uh, compliance, uh, we haven't talked a lot about compliance actually at all so far, but compliance is a big part of finance, which uh, if you've been reading through the regulations part of your materials, you've know that there's a lot of rules and, and, uh, there's not all the rules. There's a lot of laws out there in terms of what we in finance can and can't do. And these laws aren't just created and, and there's not just, we don't just assume that these companies are just doing the right thing. Um, you know, and, and also the regulators within finance don't have all the ability in the world to make, to babysit and to supervise every single thing you do. So almost every single firm out there has their own compliance staff and their job is just to make sure that you're following the rules and you're not breaking any of the rules or doing anything that might get you into trouble or might in, incur a fine, a suspension, a, a revocation of a, of a license. Um, so compliance people are very much, uh, you want to think of them as almost the referees on a football field. Um, they're the ones who are going to make sure that everything is working the way it should. And if there's, if a flag needs to be thrown or if there are, or if, uh, someone needs to stop doing something that's breaking the law or just breaking a rule, then they're there to make sure that that doesn't happen. Yeah. And I think that, um, in a way, like when you're a, a really big bank, like let's say fidelity, um, or just financial firm, not bank. Um, you, you know, it's in not just your interest, right, but in the interest of all of your shareholders who you're technically accountable to, 
that you follow the rules. Absolutely. And, and also these rules are very complicated. Um, you know, you might be thinking that the SIE material is really tough and it's really dense, but, but you have no idea. The rules and regulations are very uh, complicated uh, and very hard to understand at times. So you literally need to hire someone or a lot of times for the larger firms, we're talking departments, hundreds of people, just to make sure that your your employees are following the rules. It's a huge part of finance, and just with the amount of rules and regulations that are in place, you got to make sure that there are people in place that are making that are ensuring that you're compliant with everything. So, that's a that's a big opportunity, especially within within an, an asset management fund. And I didn't mention compliance in the other for the other business businesses that we discussed, but there are compliance roles in every single one of them. So. Another opportunity out there that you might be able to seek. The last thing I'll say here about compliance, though, is that it's probably not your entry-level type of a job. It's very rare that a company is going to hire someone who has who has no finance experience or just is graduating with a finance degree into that type of position because a lot of times you need to understand what's what the real world before you get into a job that's, that's, say, supervising the real world. So that's probably a job that, that you could... You know, reasonably attain a lower level, entry level compliance job after maybe one or two years of solid experience, uh, especially for the type of people who are good at memorizing rules, good at following rules, rules, and 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 uh, and ultimately aren't being cowboys out there in finance. If that makes sense, right? And it's probably good anyways to understand the context, right? Like most of the people who are referees, to use your earlier example, played the sport that they're refereeing. Um, just because you need you, then you know what's going on. Well, great. I think that is a really good overview of the different roles in finance and deep diving into investment banking, private equity, hedge funds, and asset management. Um, Brandon, I'd love to just give you kind of 30 seconds to uh, wrap up here and then we can do our little uh, sign-offs. Yeah, absolutely. So hopefully this gives everyone an idea of the, you know, in general, the different types of careers that are out there. Again, you know, we didn't go in, in the depth into into any specific category, and there's lots of different opportunities out there for everyone. So bottom line, uh, do your research, uh, you know, do your networking, make sure that you're meeting the right people in finance, and, and ultimately you'll you'll find a way into the career that you, you eventually want to get into if you, if you just keep being curious and you keep, you keep focusing on, on, on bettering your position. Right. You could even combine your two sort of desires to both learn about the different roles in finance and network by doing little meet and greet coffee interviews with people in various roles. Um, if that's something that you're able to pull or have access to. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, one thing that definitely would uh, at least interest uh, a employer in terms of hiring you would be if you had the SIE already completed and done. Uh, so uh, I guess that brings us back to achievable a little bit. And uh, I'll let you take it from here, Tyler. Yeah, guys. Uh, you know, we're wrapping up this episode of the Achievable Podcast. Uh, thank you very much for listening. Achievable is uh, a test prep company that is meant to combine, uh, you know, modern and beautiful software that works on your phone or desktop that uh, uses data analytics and learning science to give you the best study program possible uh, with the best experts that we can find that are really uh, forging new ground as far as how they teach the material that they're looking to teach um, and doing an approach that's 
you know, less sort of from the ivory tower and more really just kind of getting real with you about what you need to learn and how it all works, uh, which is why we're super grateful to have Brandon as our partner uh, and his company, Basic Wisdom. Yeah, and oh, should mention um, if you yeah if you're interested in Achievable uh, or in Brandon and Achievable's combined Finra SIE course, uh, please visit Achievable.me uh, and you can sign up for a free account there to try it out. And then additionally, if you are actually pretty serious about finance or the SIE or other serious exams beyond the SIE uh, that Achievable does not have a course for. Uh, I cannot recommend anyone more highly as a tutor for your FINRA needs than Brandon. Uh, And his website is basicwisdom.net. So thank you very much. Thank you.